This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Christchurch is an Anglican mission founded in 1809 and it follows uh, in the old traditional church way electionary, which is a triennial cycle of reading the Bible, which is something we actually inherit from the synagogue. It's not something we invented. It means that our uh, gospel portion, our, the, all the readings are apportioned for this day. So preachers do not get to preach their top 10 favorite sermons. Okay? What happens is we have to preach all of the text, sometimes the bits we don't like, sometimes the bits we really do like, but it means that the body, the, the, the Guf HaMashiach, the body of the Messiah, gets to hear the whole gospel every three years. Okay? So today's portion can be a little challenging. And when you're the preacher assigned to uh, preach that, you think, oh, really? Can't I just have a really good healing or something? Or a really good um, kingdom of heaven parable? All right, brothers and sisters. Let's see what we got. Now, the Gospels are finely crafted texts. What do I mean by that? There is lots of stories of Jesus. He did lots of stuff. And when the gospel writers come time to write it and put it together, they even say themselves, there's so much information that we're not including all of it. But this, this is enough, they say. They also put it into an order. So even the order of the way things are in the, in the gospels is crafted. Each gospel writer has a reason why things occur. For example, Jesus uh, uh, does his temple cleansing very early in John, chapter two, but right at the end of Matthew. And a lot of scholars go, oh my gosh, why are they, which one was it? Was it at the start, was it at the end? So what they do is they try and say, well maybe he did two, maybe he did it twice. There's no need to do that. Okay, the, the gospels are actually not chronological. They're trying to tell us a story. And that's actually very important. So it's always very also special that when we read a portion of the gospel, we look at its context. Because what's that uh, famous mem? I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. (laughs) And so in in this chapter, we have had, okay, we've had um, Jesus, Peter, sorry, wrong guy. Peter have his shining moment where he gets to say, you're the Messiah, I get it. After all this time, you're the Messiah. And you're well done. Shame that Nathaniel figured this out after 10 seconds of meeting Jesus in, in John chapter one. But hey, okay, good, you got there, fantastic. And then Yeshua, Jesus, he says, okay, Peter, that's awesome. Now take up your cross and follow me. Well, what does that look like to take up your cross? What does that actually physically mean? Because the next part of the story is the transfiguration, which is in all of the synoptics, where Jesus takes his, uh, a small group of people up on top of a mountain, and he is transfigured before them. What does that teach us? It teaches us not everyone gets the miracle. It's nice if you see one, but all the rest of the disciples didn't get to see it, and they were just as valuable 
And in fact, one of the guys who did see it is going to be the first of the apostles to die in Acts 12. But in, in, uh, in, on the transfiguration, as recorded in Luke, and it's only in Luke, Moses and Elijah are talking to, to Jesus, and in Luke, you actually get what they're talking about. And it says in the Greek that they were talking about his exodus, his exodus. Moses and Elijah were telling Yeshua, telling Jesus, you're on the way out. It's going to happen. So the next part of the story, after a healing, is going to be him setting his face resolutely towards Jerusalem. And when God comes down to minister to his son, who's going to need this, he, he blesses him by saying, this is my son whom I love very much. Listen to him. And the word in Hebrew to listen is shma. Everyone's heard this word? Yes, shma. Great word. It means to listen, yes. But it is also the biblical Hebrew word for obey. There's no other word in the Bible for obey. It's shomer, okay? Listen. So if you hear God, what are you going to do? Obey it. Yeshua says that. Blessed is he who hears my words and obeys them. Okay, which, which would have sound great in Hebrew. Blessed is he who shmars my words and shmars them. Okay? So you should listen to Jesus, who's just happened to have said, take up your cross. Okay, we're going to take up our cross. How are we going to do that? Well, despite the fact that Jesus is the king, the rest of the disciples have a small little discussion. Who's, who's after him? Who's next? Who's the greatest? Can I sit... Uh, on your right or your left? Who's the greatest disciple? What about me? What about ourselves? Isn't that interesting? After all this time spending with Jesus, what's the one thing the disciples are not doing? They're not listening. Because Jesus has actually said to them, I'm heading to Jerusalem to die. They still are not listening. Now, Jesus here sets his face towards Jerusalem and the, the word in Greek is very strong. He earnestly, steadfastly, resolutely, firmly grits his teeth you know, and uh, gets that uh, hoo-ha ready and starts heading towards Jerusalem. Because, as the text says, now it came to pass in verse 51 that the time had come for him and his ascension. Ooh, time. God loves time. He's even, dare I say, almost obsessed with it. What's the first thing in the Bible that God makes holy? Time. He makes the Sabbath holy. At the end of every day of creation, he says, this is good. And then on Tuesday, he says, this is good twice. And no one knows why. But now in Jewish tradition, that means that Tuesday is the day of double blessing. That's the day you all get married on. Okay? The third day of the week. That's why the Gospel of John starts. It was the third day of the week there was a wedding in Cana. It's also the day you out and go out and buy lottery tickets. <laughs> but when you get to day seven, God says this. This is holy. Time is very special. God and things happen on certain times. Oddly enough, 
they always happen in often the same time, in the same way. In the, it's a thing that God does. In, in, uh, in Jewish tradition, heroes of God are born and they die on the same day. How do we come to this wonderful conclusion, I hear you ask? You guys ask lots of hard questions. Because it says Abraham died when he was 175 years old. Not 175 and a half. Not 175 and three quarters. Not 175 and if you just hold on for two more weeks he would have made it to 176, poor guy. But 175, which means he died on his birthday. That's why all the heroes of God seem to know when they're dying so they can gather all their friends together and have their last blessings and testimonies. So if heroes of God are born and die on the same day and you know when Jesus dies because God is very special. It was time to go to Jerusalem. Which time are we talking about? Passover. Very important for Jesus to be in Jerusalem at Passover. He is our Passover lamb. He is not killed at Yom Kippur. He is our Passover sacrifice, not the Yom Kippur sacrifice. There's a meaning in there. But if Jesus dies on Passover, when was he born? Passover. And so in Jewish tradition, Jewish Christian tradition, the early Jewish believers in Yeshua, in Jesus, they believed that Mary, in Hebrew, Lehit Abra, was, was incarnated with the Messiah at Passover. Okay? And so Jesus was, was, uh, was, became into the flesh at Passover and he dies again at Passover. A very Jewish thing to say. So time is very important for God and he's got to get Jesus there for Passover. So as he goes, he sends people ahead of him to prepare. And who does he send? The text says he sent messengers. The actual Greek says angels. That doesn't mean he sent angels. Who did he actually send? Sent the disciples. How many has he got? He's got a lot. He's not just got the inner 12. There's a group of these people. Some of them are even women. And so not all of our uh, workers in the kingdom are angelic. That is super divine or natural. They're also uh, human. So they go to this Samaritan village to prepare for Jesus. He is, after all, partly human. And he has needs. But they won't receive him. Why not? I mean, he's dealt with Samaritans before, and he's always been very generous with them. He's actually taught his disciples something by being generous with Samaritans. And this, he's, a, he's dealt with a Samaritan woman. And later on in the book of Acts, we're going to, to present them with the gospel through Philip. But here, the Samaritans don't have anything to do with him. Why not? Because it says his face is set to Jerusalem. He's not going to minister to the Samaritans this time. So what's their reaction? Ooh, we don't want to have anything to do with him. Now, isn't that interesting? We'll only talk to Jesus if he's talking to us. Hmm. If Jesus is running around blessing somebody else, is that okay? 
The answer has to be yes. It's got to be yes, brothers and sisters. When it's time for Yeshua, when it's time for the master to talk to us, great. When it's time to, for him to give you a gift, excellent. When it's time to him, for him to give you a call, fantastic. But if he's talking to somebody else, that's good too. It's fantastic. The disciples, well, they, they get a bit indignant uh, about this scenario. And so our two heroes, James and John, uh, the brothers together, they decide, okay, Lord, these nasty Samaritans, we'll take them out for you. We'll do the, the Elijah thing, okay, the, where he does the fire from the prophets of Baal. A little bit of overconfidence from these boys. Why? Because they've already blown it in the same chapter. When, the, when they were trying to cast out a demon from a little girl, they couldn't do it. They failed. And Jesus actually had to say, look, this one actually only comes out with prayer and fasting. Okay? So we fail as part of our service. Okay? We, 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 we don't succeed once, but don't worry. Try and try and try again, even better than before. Okay? We're going to overdo it. And, and not only are we over going to do it, we're going to wipe out a whole people group. Okay? We are rather zealous. That's also something perhaps we can learn. That if, when we don't succeed in something... Be very careful with the next try. Try. Don't say don't try. Just, just follow the teachings of Jesus. He turns around and what does he say? He says, listen, I didn't come to kill. I didn't come to destroy. That's somebody else. Somebody else has come to kill. Somebody else is here to destroy. Some other thief is around, but not me. My gifts are free. They're life. And there's salvation. I've come to save. So we'll go to another place. It doesn't even tell you where they went. But that place received them. And isn't that nice and humbling? They helped the Lord and don't even get a mention. It's another good characteristic of a disciple. To be humble. To be just like Jesus. Some of our disciples, as we see, very passionate. Very reactionary. And then we get a group of people coming to follow Jesus and sometimes Jesus is going to ask people to follow him. And so we have a little discussion on the nature of discipleship. Now discipleship in, uh, is actually not a Jewish invention. Do you know who invented the idea of disciples? It's actually the Greeks. Hey, the Greek masters would Socrates and all them would gather themselves little students and that's what a disciple is in Hebrew Talmidim, Talmid from Lelamed Alilmod, sorry, to, to teach to instruct their students so when God Jesus says go out and make disciples what does he say? go out and make students study the word of God faith comes by hearing teach it to people. Now disciples uh, in the Jewish world they take some of the ideas of what the Greeks are doing and they perfect it. And uh, discipleship in the ancient world is not that we just show up uh, on a midweek Bible study for a couple of hours with Yeshua, with Jesus or um, worship together with him on Shabbat and then go home. When you're a disciple of your master, guess what you do? You stick with your rabbi. 
like glue. You follow him wherever he goes. You live with him. So when he wakes up in the morning, you cook him his breakfast. You wash his clothes. You shine his shoes. And you watch. You watch how he wakes up in the morning. You pay attention. You listen to the prayers that he prays. And then you pray like him. In fact, you ask him, how do I, how do I pray, Lord? Teach me to pray. You watch what he eats and you eat the same. You watch what he wears and you dress like it. Sounds a bit like a cult, doesn't it? You walk like him, talk like him, act like him, teach like him, speak like him. So by the time Jesus is finished with his uh, disciples, how many Jesuses has he got? Hundreds of them. (laughs) And not only that, you're supposed to do more. The classic example when, when, the, when the rabbis have a look at uh, the Greek world and they go, cool, they have disciples, so what can we do? They look at the classic disciple that they find in the Bible, which we read today, Elisha and Elijah. So Elisha, Elisha becomes the disciple, the student of Elijah. And he does twice as many miracles as Elijah does. Isn't that cool? And Jesus says exactly the same thing to us, does he not? He says, brothers and sisters, you're going to do more than me. You're going to do greater things than me. Have we done it? Have we? Yes. Yes, we have. Jesus taught. How many did he teach? 70, 100. How many people has the church taught? Billions. When the missionaries went over the world, they built schools. They taught people how to read, how to write. They translated the Bible into as many languages as you could possibly imagine. We said, this is the word of God. Read it. Inside is life. In fact, if you can't read it, I'll read it for you. Just hear it. Jesus healed. Yes, he did. And what has the church done? It's built hospitals all over the world. It's fought back the plague. Some countries we cured blindness. We invented vaccines. We keep fighting. We will never stop looking for that cure for cancer. That doesn't mean I don't believe in in healings, I do. But the church has done great things. Because we're supposed to. We are supposed to look like our master. We're supposed to act like our master. We're supposed to be like our master. So that when he left and he gave us his spirit, we are, as Paul says, Christ's ambassadors. We are the witnesses of the living Messiah. So here in our first part of our text, in uh, verse 57, uh, we get this guy, unnamed, uh, who comes up and says, I will follow you. I want to follow you. I want to be on your team. Your team is pretty cool. We don't know who he is. Jesus doesn't call him. He wants to join. Why does he want to join? The text doesn't say. Maybe he's seen something. Maybe he's seen the miracles. Maybe he's heard the sermons. Maybe he's just trying to get out of life from something else. But whatever it is, he's attracted to Jesus. Now Jesus doesn't say, don't follow me. But what he does do is he tells him the truth. Are you looking 
for the miracles, brother? Are you seeking the power and the riches and the glory? Well, I don't have a house and I don't have a home and I don't have anywhere to lay my head. That is a very different message that we get from televangelists these days, which like to tell us that if you believe in Jesus, you're going to be rich. If you give lots of money, you'll get lots of money back. Listen to Jesus. Foxes have holes, birds have nests. I have nothing. Now, I'm not going to say uh, that God is against wealth, He's not. God loves, a lot of God's heroes are rich. Abraham was rich, King David is rich, Solomon's filthy stinking rich. Okay. Uh, many of the rabbis were dirty, rotten, filthy stinking rich. Jesus is supported, he's not poor. The ministry of Jesus is actually supported by rich women, which I think is a very biblical model, ladies. Okay. So, if you'd like to get on board with, the, with Jesus. <laughs> The reason why um, people in the West are rich is because we live in the rich West. The top 10 people who are the wealthiest people in the world are not believers. It's got nothing to do with your faith. And there's lots of people in the third world who love Jesus and die for Jesus every day. And they've got nothing. Believe in Jesus in the Sudan does not mean you're going to get a Mercedes. It does not. It's great if you've got one. Now be generous. Jesus says when he's saying this, he identifies a very important title amongst himself. He says, the son of man has nothing. You sure you want to be on my team? Who is this son of man? Why does Jesus never call himself the son of God? That's a really good question. You guys ask lots of hard questions. Son of God. That's a title and it's a term. Angels are called sons of God. Israel's called the son of God. You and I are called the sons and daughters of God. It identifies a relationship. Do we have a relationship with God? Jesus also is a son of God, yes, because he's in relationship with the Father. But he himself identifies when he's here on the planet. He says, I am the son of man. The son of man does not have a home. Well, where's the son of man? I hear you, hear you ask. It's from the book of Daniel. And if you've been reading the book of Daniel, then you know that in the judgment scene, when God is sitting on the throne and the angels are all about him and he's ready to open up the books, then someone comes and stands in front of him, the son of man. And that son of man is powerful. He's apocalyptic. He's, uh, he's, he's everything that, uh, that, that the rest of heaven is not. And he is given the dominion and he is given the authority and all the nations worship him. So if there's any character in the Bible that Jesus would like to identify with. He says, oh, by the way, I'm that guy. I am the son of man. Could people only just listen? He never hid who he was. He is the son of man, the most powerful person, apart from God, that we see in the text. 
So then the next section is he starts doing some calling. So the first guy, I'd like to follow you. Be careful that you're not chasing the power of God. Be careful that you're not chasing after where there's an outpouring of the Spirit, so I'm going there. Seek the heart of God, not just his power. Seek first the kingdom and everything else comes to. But here you need Jesus starts calling and he says, listen, I would like you to follow me. Now remember, discipleship means come live with your master, come look like him, walk where he goes, be like him. In fact, in, in Jewish tradition, even pay, pay your rabbis. Okay? Uh, even today, I study with uh, some rabbis twice a week. And every time we meet, we study the Bible and we all pay. That's sweet. At the end of our lesson, we give our, our, our rabbi 50 shekels. That's what he gets. And uh, here, follow me. And the man, again, unnamed, could be you, could be me. Lord, let me go first and bury my dad. Now that seems on the surface to be quite a nice thing. Except if someone says, I need to go bury my father, that doesn't mean your dad's dead. Because if your dad was dead, what would you have done? You'd have buried your father. <laughs> or you'd be sitting shiva, you wouldn't even be there. Okay, you know, in Jewish tradition, they bury them within 24 hours. Have you noticed that? Okay, sometimes it can get a little annoying when you're about to go to work and you get the phone call, look, we're burying somebody at three. Oh, dang. How am I going to tell my boss I'm not showing up today? who's actually here. <laughs> um, it means that this guy's father is not dead yet. He doesn't know when his dad's going to die. Jesus says, follow me. Not yet. I'll wait a little bit. I'll hang out until um, I've got my pension. I'll, I'll, I'll serve you, Lord, when I'm wealthy enough and I can support myself. I'll, I'll serve you, Lord, when I've fixed all of my house, when I've, when, I've, when I've made sure that I've paid off the loan. And what does Jesus say to that? That is not the disciple I'm looking for. You cannot serve two masters. The dead bury their own dead. You let the world take care of itself. Another one comes, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first go and, and say farewell to everyone who's in my home. Who's really more important? People are very important. They are. Our wives are important. Our children are important. The person sitting next to you is horribly important. And God loves them so much. Sometimes we, we, we keep our eyes so fixated uh, upwards that we forget to look sideways too and notice the lonely and the stranger and the weak. But here I'm not talking about that. We're talking about serving a different master. Wanting to make sure that we're more comfortable, to make sure that our families are all okay and then I'll go and serve Jesus. God will take care of them too. And he says here, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And again, in our text that we, we read this morning from the kings, Elisha, what does he say to Elijah? Let me first go back. And what does 
Elisha actually do? Let me first go back and kiss my father. What does he do? He doesn't go back and kiss his father. What does he actually do in the text? I know we read it. Most of us probably can't remember. He goes and kills the cows and he takes the plow and he burns it up and he makes an offering and he starts following. And that's the type of, of, of disciple that God is wanting. When he calls, he wants us to begin our obedience immediately. There are only two kingdoms of the world. There's the kingdom of heaven and then there's the other one. There's no middle ground. You can't sit on the fence. And it, in, in, in many of our traditions, we don't like the idea of a king. Um, in the Middle East, we don't like the idea of democracy. <laughs> okay? um, and if anyone's following Israeli politics, it'll just prove to you democracy doesn't work. Kings are, are important here. And I come from Australia, which means we actually still have a king or queen. And she's doing really well. Okay? Uh, we really like her. Every time you have a Christmas address from all the world leaders, she's the only one that talks about Jesus. Have you noticed that? She's awesome. I hope you're listening. But if she walks into this room and she says, Aaron, get me an apple, what do I do? I get her an apple. Why? Because she's the queen. I, say, I don't say, I'm sorry, ma'am. Are your arms painted on? They're over there. Help yourself. No, you'll rush to obey. It has nothing to do with getting into the kingdom. You don't get her an apple so that I can become a really nice subject of the queen. I don't get her an apple so I can join the British Empire. I'm already in the British Empire. Yay. But I'm also in the kingdom of heaven. And so are you. And so, when the master comes calling... And he says, follow me. You don't say, no, not yet. You don't say, I'll just first pay off my debts. I'll just go and, and make sure my family's all right. You serve immediately. Seek first the kingship of heaven. And everything else gets added. It might not be much. It might not be a Mercedes. It, uh, some of us, it's not going to be very much at all. But that's okay. Because you'll get Jesus. There are only two kingdoms of the world. And God, he's not here to rain fire and brimstone on you. That's, that's going to come later. But when it's time for God to roll up history, everyone gets what they want. Except for God. If you want Jesus, you get him. Lock, stock, and two smoking barrels. You'll have the Holy Spirit. You'll be part of the biggest gang in all of human history. Everywhere you go, you will find a brother or sister. You will be able to pray together, worship together, share your, your needs, have people minister to you and minister to others. You'll have Jesus and more. But if you want the world... If you don't want the yoke of the kingdom of heaven, if you want to follow after your own desires, then you'll get it. And when you climb the top of the mountain, when you finally reach 
that great goal of 10 degrees and PhDs and top of the corporate ladder, you'll discover that there's nothing up there. And when you close your eyes for the very last time, you won't like it. But you'll get what you want. But the person who won't get what he wants will be the guy who started everything. Now isn't that interesting? Because God says, I would like it that all come to know. But is that going to happen? Isn't that interesting? God is so good. He gives you such a free gift. And it's an absolute blessing to seek first the kingdom of heaven. And in the last analogy of the harvest, I'll finish with this. It'll appear in next week's lectionary. But for this one, I'll actually quote from the Pirkei Avot, which is a, a rabbinical saying from the first century. And it talks about the harvest. And it talks about the workers who are in this harvest field and how the day is beginning to end and the blessings that are coming are going to be amazing. And the master of the house is very, very insistent. Brothers and sisters, the harvest is abundant. There is a whole world out there. As soon as we leave these doors, you and I are in the kingdom of heaven. We're in the kingdom of heaven now. We're in the kingdom of heaven out there. And you and I have a job to do, to follow the call of the master, to look like him, to act like him, to talk like him, and to love like him. The harvest is abundant. The daylight is fading. The task is great. The workers are lazy. The reward is exceeding. And the master is urgent. Brothers and sisters, he's coming again soon. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page or leaving a review in iTunes. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.